Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. This is a podcast about clinical reasoning in internal medicine. The podcast is supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Barry Casson. Hey, Barry. Hey, Steph. I'm also joined by Dr. Janet Simons. Hi there. By our chief medical resident right now, Dr. Katrina Dutkiewicz. Hello. And presenting the case today will be Dr. Thomas Rosten. Uh, welcome for myself as well. I'm looking forward to presenting a, a case today that uh, is an interesting case to me in terms of the diagnostic workup, but also maybe an opportunity in this podcast to talk a little bit about common problems we see in internal medicine and how we approach them and think about them. So I'm going to take you back many years to uh, 1995 uh, when uh, Windows 95 first came out and talk to you about a case that probably could have been uh, recognized a little bit earlier than it actually was, and I'll give you some of the background history. So this is, a at the time, a 32-year-old lady who presented to internal medicine for chest pain. Chest pain is a very common reason we see patients in internal medicine and cardiology, uh, and I think we follow a sort of standard diagnostic workup. And she had some of that, but being relatively young, uh, I think a lot of it was, uh, was at the time, chalked up to being uh, non-organic disease. So uh, she has no significant past medical history at the time. She doesn't take any medications at all. She has no cardiovascular risk factors whatsoever. Um, and she has some interesting family history that of unclear significance. So uh, the patient's father uh, started having chest pain in his 40s, which was somewhat consistent with angina. And then her sister died suddenly in her late 30s in the context of potentially multiple contributing medications. Mm. So... Uh, another interesting pertinent point potentially in the history. So this young lady at the time describes mild chest pain at rest. Uh, it's non-exertional. It's unpredictable. It's associated with occasional palpitations and dizziness. At the time, the physical exam was documented as being normal, although we don't have all of the exact um, uh, details. Uh, at the time, also, her ECG was unremarkable. Uh, and she had an echocardiogram that showed quite significant bileaflet mitral valve prolapse. And at that time, a, no formal diagnosis was actually made, but uh, the, the physician who saw her uh, suspected that there could still be something going on. So over the next few years, she essentially managed fairly well on her own without any real intervention, but she did have ongoing chest pain, and the nature and severity remained relatively unchanged. Then about eight years later, she was assessed by a cardiologist again, and at this point, some of the chest pain has a more exertional pattern to it as well. Um, and she goes on to have an exercise treadmill test. And the exercise treadmill test shows that she develops a rate-related left bundle branch block at about 120 beats per minute. So it's unclear at that point what exactly the diagnosis was felt to be, but in 2006, so a few years later, she was seen by a different cardiologist for um, more exertional chest pain. And at that point, she had sort of a more standard set of uh, investigations where she had a myocardial perfusion scan that was unremarkable again. She had a repeat echo that again reproduced the previous finding of bileaflet mitral valve prolapse, and she had pulmonary function testing done at that time as well, which was all normal. And at that point, she received a diagnosis of either mitral valve prolapse syndrome or of syndrome X, which is the concept that you can have sort of non-obstructive microvascular coronary disease that can give you chest pain. So at this point, I'd like to stop and uh, open it up for a little bit of discussion around 
how you approach a patient who has chest pain and what you think a reasonable diagnostic algorithm is for this uh, young lady and also what your tentative thoughts are on the potential diagnosis. I'm just excited that this is a problem for which I actually have an approach. (laughs) (laughs) The last few cases I've just been uh, swimming in it by this point. I, I, I mean, I'm happy to jump in. I think I think about chest pain as being mostly cardiac versus non-cardiac, I would say. And I start to think about cardiac chest pain as soon as the symptom becomes exertional. My other big basket of non-cardiac chest pain, most, it, I mean, it really, you need to know more about the history, but I would say that it ends up being gastroesophageal, musculoskeletal or sort of respiratory chest tightness, like uh, asthma, most often when it's non-cardiac. So without knowing more here, I mean, I would say that the thing that that, um, impresses me most is that this lady has had 10 years of chest pain or more, and a lot of that chest pain has been exertional. To call someone like that, especially with uh, a really impressive family history, cardiac syndrome X, without doing an angiogram, to me is like a little bit perplexing at this point. But but I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I'm so young. I was like a, a fetus in 1995. The whole uh, syndrome X concept, I mean, I've heard of it, and I understand sort of the, the pathological, pathophysiological kind of reasoning behind it. But I don't know that I've ever been tempted to diagnose a person with it or have seen people who really carry these as like the final diagnosis. It seems sort of like, I don't know if a cop out, but you know, an incomplete explanation for a set of symptoms. The other thing I wanted to say is I feel like when I was in medical school, I felt that chest pain was something that I felt really comfortable with. I could ask my series of questions of, is this cardiac? Uh, And then if it wasn't cardiac, I could say, okay, we're okay. This isn't, and it's something else. But I think over the past year in particular, I began to appreciate that it's most difficult to figure out those non-cardiac causes of chest pain. And I'd go back to what Dr. Simon said. I don't think I have a good sense of either mitral valve prolapse syndrome or syndrome X and whether whether that's a true diagnosis or whether that would explain the symptoms that she's having. Right, and I think that those, all of those points are very pertinent for this case. So we're presenting this as a podcast, so it will turn out that she has some cardiac disease with a clear diagnosis. Um, but I think in, in the field of internal medicine cardiology, we see a lot of patients with common issues like chest pain, and I think it's often really difficult to know how far we go and how um, in-depth we search for a diagnosis. And I think that sometimes it's reasonable to say we're not exactly sure what it is, but we've ruled out the life-threatening causes and see how things go. Um, Because every test is associated with some risk, some incidental finding that could potentially be harmful. And I think at the same time, we also can't discount a story that potentially is worrisome. Um, And I think there's several features. When I think about something I can hang my hat on in her case, if I look back at how decisions were made, is what do you guys think are things that are particularly worrisome about her story, about what I've talked about already, that makes you wonder if a diagnosis of syndrome X or mitral valve prolapse is maybe incorrect? Well, I mean, I think as as Stefan mentioned, the thing that jumps out at me is just the duration and consistency of the presentation, right? So 10 years of this pain that sounds like it's been very consistent in its description, in its uh, triggering factors, um, that's very concerning. You know, you don't 
if it's MSK or, or GERD, you expect sort of waxing and waning or some change, but this is a very consistent presentation. So that definitely would prompt me to not sort of uh, push this aside. And then obviously the family history we alluded to, uh, sudden death uh, always perks my ears up. So maybe I can jump in because one of the things that would alert me to suggesting that this is um, this is cardiac origin, but for etiology, I'm not certain, it was the rate-related bundle branch block. Yeah. And I think that, that of all the things we've heard to date, and if I could give you a visualization of this person, she is in no distress. Uh, she looks perfectly calm and comfortable while she's giving this uh, story. And you're tempted, or I was tempted, to think of other things. This was the big, This was the issue that I had difficulty explaining. I would also go back and, and dig around uh, to get the report on that treadmill. Like, how exactly, what were the circumstances around that treadmill being stopped? Um, was it stopped when she developed the bundle branch block? Because if it was, that should have prompted another probably more invasive investigation. You know, it, for me, if someone develops a bundle branch block on the treadmill, I will push them until they ask me to stop. And so, you know, I, I remember, the, uh, yeah, that result, I would say, is it's, it's worrisome, um, although it's not a specific finding. I think it, it's, I agree with Barry. It's, a, it's an amber flag, at least. Right, and I think... Uh, in retrospect, looking at the case, I think that was an important clue. And the things that I hang my hat on when I thought about her initially is there's one thing is that she describes a very typical pattern of angina, um, especially as the years go by. So she has really reproducible chest pain, which I think is uh, makes things more worrisome. And I think also the fact that she's a rate-related left bundle branch block in a woman who's in her late 30s and early 40s is also very atypical. So it actually prompted me a little bit to look at the literature around uh, rate-related left bundle branch block. And there's a number of studies in the 70s and 80s and circulation, British Heart Journal, about what the prognostic significance of this is. And there obviously is some selection bias because patients who get treadmill tests are more likely to have underlying uh, cardiac disease. But it seems that most patients in these trials who do have rate-related left bundle branch blocks do have some form of structural heart disease either coronary disease or cardiomyopathies um, or some form of congenital heart disease. Um, and then uh, there's a very good study in JAMA in 1998. The first author is Grady. And they looked at the prognostic significance of patients who had an exercise-induced left bundle branch block. Um, and this study was basically a match study, and it showed that if you had a rate-related left bundle branch block compared to someone who did not, your all-cause mortality need for revascularization, non-fatal MI, VT, need for a device, all are dramatically increased if you have rate-related left bundle branch block. So I think one of the learning points for me in this case when I first saw it was the importance of recognizing this is probably quite an abnormal finding in somebody who's 40 years old. Uh, the other aspect of the case I thought was interesting, so I think we should talk really briefly about syndrome X and about mitral valve prolapse syndrome. So syndrome X is the concept, uh, or, or uh, nowadays it's more commonly referred to uh, something like microvascular angina, is the concept that you may not have uh, large epicardial coronary disease, but you do have <coughs> smaller vessel disease. So this is the concept that, uh, that you do have ischemia, but it's microvascular ischemia. And I think the important point here is that your MIBI scan, your myocardial perfusion scan, should really be abnormal if you're going to have microvascular angina. You should see a defect. Um, usually. So it's not really that consistent with, with her presentation. I won't get into it in great detail in the interest of time, but 
the concept of mitral valve prolapse syndrome is somewhat of an antiquated diagnosis. And if you look at the literature around it, there really isn't compelling evidence that reproduces this concept that patients who have mitral valve prolapse have a, any greater risk of palpitations or anxiety or chest pain compared to the general population. But just because mitral valve prolapse syndrome is so common that in the early uncontrolled studies, it was it seemed like it was an association, but in the larger studies, that seems to be less uh, recognized. So I wonder, do you think the fact that she had mitral valve prolapse sort of actually made the physician seeing her sort of more likely to write off her chest pain symptoms? Well, let me put it in perspective. At the time that this diagnosis of mitral valve prolapse was made, it was called sudden death syndrome. So her sister died suddenly, so this was a sudden death syndrome. And when, when echo was being developed and this was recognized, when you recognized this, there was a great move to put someone on a beta blocker and prevent, in quote, sudden death. And, and so what Thomas is saying has been knowledge subsequent to that, uh, that era. And Thomas, when you talk about it now, when you say mitral valve prolapse syndrome, that presumably means mitral valve prolapse plus what? What is the constellation of symptoms that you expect to see? Uh, so I think classically it was described as being um, association between palpitations, anxiety, chest pain, uh, and it was commonly associated with younger females. And there's actually large societies that still exist. If you search mitral valve prolapse on Google, you you find a lot of resources on it. And it's one of those diagnoses that the medical community, I think, finds controversial nowadays. But I think there are a lot of patients who find uh, comfort and reassurance in having some form of diagnosis. And that is a diagnosis that some people still carry. So I think what we're getting at here is interesting concept. I like to think about cognitive errors. And I think in her case, a cognitive error was made. Um, and the cognitive error I think that was made is something called search satisfying bias. So search satisfying bias is the idea that um, you stop considering other simultaneous diagnoses once you feel a main diagnosis has been made. Uh, and I think that's often the case for us in medicine is we really want to give patients diagnoses. And I think that can be therapeutic. But I think we also have to recognize that sometimes that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to look over time. I want to move on and push the case along. So let's move up, you know, seven or eight years to 2015. So the relatively modern times and talk about what happens to her. So she continues to experience more and more chest pain with exertion. She starts to feel lightheaded with exertion. She has a number of investigations over the years, including echocardiograms, um, which all don't show anything particularly significant. And she comes to your office now, uh, hemodynamically stable, and complaining of worsening angina to the point where she seems to be having symptoms just with minimal exertion. What would you do now, and what are your thoughts on the case? Oh, this is too obvious. I, I would ask a cardiologist to do an angiogram. Like I'm, I'm pretty concerned at this point with this level of angina. I, I'm not honestly sure what else I would do besides get an angio and see if I could medically manage some of her symptoms. Like, Yeah, we talk about this all the time. Like You hear the symptoms sound very typical, and so your pre-test probabilities of this woman having an obstructive coronary lesion or multiple lesions is so high that there isn't a non-invasive test with performance characteristics that are adequate to rule out coronary disease. So you get a negative MIBI, you say maybe it's balanced ischemia. You get a negative treadmill, you say treadmills aren't very sensitive. You, you know, there just isn't a test. So I think the only test that could satisfy me at this point would be an angiogram. So that is what is arranged. 
And I think one thing that's important about an angiogram is it doesn't just give you information about the coronary vessels. You can also do other things during the angiogram that help give you information. So during the angiogram, she also has things like her left-sided heart pressures measured. She has, um, you know, investigations to see what her EF looks like, to see what her valves are doing. And probably unsurprising to you since this is being presented as a, as a podcast, she does not have any epicardial coronary disease at all, which I think is not, was not a, probably a huge surprise since she has had symptoms since the age of 32. So it would be odd for her chest pain to be related to coronary artery disease that had basically gone untreated for 20 years and for her still not to have suffered any evidence of an infarct. She also has some pressures measured in her left ventricle. Her end diastolic pressure is normal. She has no gradient over the aortic valve. She has normal ejection fraction. And at this point, we're still at a loss for what a diagnosis is. So maybe synthesizing everything that we've talked about so far, what is there anything else you feel would be useful or have we satisfied the diagnostic workup? I think I'd be interested in looking more towards whether she could have some sort of either myocarditis or some infiltrative process that was causing her symptoms. And I don't think we've had a cardiac MRI to look at those sorts of possibilities. So I believe at some point she does have a cardiac MRI, um, but I don't have the results here. And I think the MRI may have occurred after the diagnosis was already made. So I won't reveal that yet, but I think that's a reasonable test to consider. Or any other, are there any other thoughts about, about what else can be considered at this time? I mean, I think other mimics include, like, I don't know if we've really talked about whether she's had empiric treatment for uh, bronchospasm, um, asthma, or if she's had empiric treatment for gastroesophageal reflux. I think coronary vasospasm is a disease that probably um, gets missed from time to time and is difficult to diagnose. She's not yet had a test for coronary vasospasm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else to do just yet. What what test would you do for coronary vasospasm? They can do something intra-coronary yeah. for the, during an angiogram, right? Yeah, there's, they can use several different agents. They inject them down the coronaries. One of them is ergovine, which it essentially is a, it's like a methacholine challenge for your coronary arteries. Some institutions in Europe do it a lot, but one of the worries is it carries some risk if you induce spasm that you can't get the patient out of. So, I think sometimes there's some reluctance to do that. So it often is a diagnosis of exclusion. And patients with coronary vasospasm that, you know, is causing chest pain, the idea is that the vasospasm is intermittent and um, time-limited sufficiently that there is no, like, ischemia, you know. There's no infarct. There's no infarct to find on maybe your... So uh, unfortunately, some patients who have vasospasm have it so severely they can have um, they can have huge infarcts. They can have cardiac arrest from it. It's it's a gradient, I think, of severity. Um, so people do die of vasospasm, but it, it's a relatively uncommon diagnosis. And I think the people who have a very poor course overall, it's relatively <clears throat> rare too. Uh, maybe I'll just add one other feature uh, because the chest pain is certainly progressive and limiting, but she's actually functionally limited now. She's pretty much sitting in a chair. She walks, but She's now stopped work. She, she, her life has changed dramatically, and yet all of the things you've said and all the things Thomas has presented are what we have, and you've done the angiogram. And the pain has always been exertional, or at least in the last 15 years or so it's been exertional. I think one of the challenges is that people don't often, or patients don't often completely read the script when it comes to like what is typical and what they should say. I think her symptoms are certainly worsened by exertion, um, but there are periods when she has had rest pain as well. 
but it does seem to be follow the pattern of mostly exertionally related. And the functional limitation is like completely secondary to the chest symptoms. Like there's no other end organ findings or anything to point us in, di- in a direction. No, I think I think she does have some shortness of breath as well on exertion. She's short of breath, but she doesn't have any findings to suggest uh, hemodynamic instability or dysfunction at the time. Even when she's telling you this, that you 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 can't find anything that would support the the clinical information that that she's giving you. But she's short of breath. She's short of breath, and she's actually feeling dizzy. And I will add to this the script. I don't mean to prolong it, but multiple medications have been tried, and she says that it makes it worse. So in the interest of time, I think we should uh, press forward as to what the next steps would be for her. So I think a very uh, um, insightful cardiologist sees her, who I feel I have learned a lot from. And one thing is is that uh, he, he did was that he really went back to what the patient told him. And what the patient told him is that I have exertional symptoms. So I think a test that allows you to reproduce that can sometimes be the most useful test for figuring out what the diagnosis is. What he advocated for was a test that would attempt to reproduce the symptoms. Um, So she had had a a stress test many years ago which showed the exercise-induced left bundle branch block. So at this point, she actually goes on to have an exercise stress echo. So not all institutions do exercise stress echo. Um, but it's often a very useful test, and the typical use for a stress echo is to look for ischemia, exercise-induced ischemia. But another thing that it can tell you a lot about is the hemodynamics during exercise. So what actually occurs when she exercises first for the, um, for the stress echo, before they actually do the images, is her systolic blood pressure drops by 25 points during exercise. And I guess I'll stop again at this point and ask whether you feel this helps you make a diagnosis or point you in a certain direction. It's a red flag sign on a treadmill when someone drops their blood pressure. A red flag in terms of like suspicion of an obstructive coronary lesion. How to make sense of that when we know she's got a clean angiogram is tricky. I don't know if that that could support a diagnosis of cardiac syndrome X of microvascular ischemia. You know, we know that she does not, as far as we know, we, do, we don't think that she's got a cardiomyopathy of, of any kind, either, either hypertrophic or dilated. I'm, I'm not sure, other than, other than I've seen that as a red flag for ischemia, I don't know what to do with that low blood pressure. I mean, all I can think of is kind of going back to, you know, what are the components of how we maintain blood pressure? you know, basically cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. So I guess we suspect that there's a cardiac output problem, but I would also start thinking about if there are more systemic um, you know, autoimmune things or something that could be affecting her ability to increase systemic vascular resistance when her blood pressure drops, because that should be the physiologic response to exercise. Um, and then, of course, if we kind of already alluded to a cardiac MRI looking for infiltrative things or anything that would, you know, impact your car- um ability to get, get your cardiac output up during exercise. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think this is going to turn out to be like a, an aortic outflow tract disease problem. So I think the most common reasons that you'll see someone drop their blood pressure during a treadmill test is either from acute ischemia, as Dr. Voye has pointed out, where you have transient LV dysfunction, high filling pressures. Um, but the other major reason that people drop their blood pressure on treadmill is from obstructive disease and obstructive valvular disease, particularly common in old people is aortic stenosis, but then also things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy come into play. 
So actually what the echo shows during stress is that she has a substantial gradient over her aortic or over her left ventricular outflow tract. So this is most consistent with some sort of obstructive process. And at this point, the transthoracic echo is re-examined um, and redone with many different maneuvers that we can do to try and increase gradients. So with, with Valsalva, we can increase gradients. With position change, we can increase gradients. So when the echo is reevaluated, it's actually felt that she probably actually has some mild septal hypertrophy consistent with possible HCM. And uh, one of the echoes shows that she can get an LVOT gradient with a, with a provocative maneuver all the way up to 74 millimeters whoa, of mercury. Whoa, whoa, mm-hmm. So this actually confirms a diagnosis most likely of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I think what I learned most from this case is that even dramatic diagnoses like HCM can initially present very subtly on imaging, especially if they're predominantly invoked by uh, activities that aren't taking place at the time you're getting, you're getting your clinical testing done. I, I, I'll stop at this point and ask if anyone has any thoughts or ideas, and then we'll wrap up the case. I just want to echo like that thought about if you can't find a reason for symptoms to you know, get the patient into the position where they are having the symptoms, if you, if possible, or doing the, the imaging or the or the investigation. So, that's that's a really good takeaway, kind of a more generalizable thing. Yeah, I mean, for me, I guess the surprise is I think of even standard transthoracic echocardiography as the modality as being quite sensitive for hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, particularly when someone is that symptomatic. I, I, this would be the first time that I've heard of a case where. Someone is diagnosed at this relative late stage, at least in her clinical presentation, with a previously normal echo. Yeah, I think too, when you look back now and you look, she's got a family history of sudden death and she's a young person with these symptoms, you almost think like, how did we not think about this before? But with no physical exam findings and with a normal echo, as you say, I don't think it was, you know, on near the top of any of our lists. I I think the other thing that we often do is that when we're insecure about diagnostic testing, we actually go to the people who do the test. So I think that there were a number of different people who actually did an echo. And in fact, even at the time, I can say that at least one of the echocardiographers that was asked about this said this was entirely normal. Um, So it's not just the test, but it's the interpreter and the experience and the context. So it's hard to say you have a cardiomyopathy if your echo is normal. And just yes, when you have a diagnostic test that you you know you sort of has a high enough sensitivity that you kind of assume that if it's negative, there's no way that could be the diagnosis, right? right? To to question that and say, oh, why did we rule out Hokum? Oh, well, because there was a normal echo like 20 years ago. Well, you, do we have a better explanation still? Yeah. So I think I learned a lot from the case about how things, how how diagnoses I think can be very look very dramatic normally can actually appear more subtly and you can have atypical presentations of things. I think the other thing that I really learned from this was the importance of uh, asking for second opinions on symptoms that don't make sense and really listening to what the patient is telling you and going back to the simple things like the family history, you know, the pattern of some lightheadedness that was associated with it. There were a number of warning clues along the way, but without a real diligent a review of all of the, the, the exams that had been done, all of the testing that had been done, this diagnosis would have been missed. Um, and quite fortunately, the diagnosis did lead to uh, treatment for her. 
She had a septal myectomy performed. Her symptoms did improve, but hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a chronic disease that's difficult to manage, and so there are residual symptoms. But at least we have the clarity of a diagnosis now, which also affects her family members who can now be screened as well. With that, we'll thank you for listening to this uh, St. Paul's podcast. We look forward to your listening again. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks.